Hello and welcome to another episode of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Bond of the Six. And Father, I apologize to you and to the audience for the last couple of episodes of starting a new episode when we have about four seconds left. <laughs> you know, this is what happens when I think I have a quick and easy uh, question and it ends up being much more evolved than that. So what this question is, is something that I have observed in my firsthand experience talking to people normally comes up around funeral homes. Um, but it's this concept that you will hear people say, you know, you'll hear a daughter say, she told me she was ready to go home to dad and she was just ready to die. And what my question is with this is that as Catholics and as individuals, essentially, is that okay? Because I know on the one hand that it probably has a lot of variables going through it. And I know you can see a look on your face already that this is not an, a one and two answer. Um, but I, I want to just kind of describe the notion that I'm trying to articulate here. This is people who, who have basically accepted that, that they're ready to pass away. And I'm not saying that, the, that they're killing themselves or they're doing suicide or anything like that. I, I'm essentially referring back to a conversation we had uh, from St. Maximilian Colby who said that he witnessed people make this choice before they actually passed away when they were in the concentration camps. And my question is, is that choice inherently good or bad to accept yourself to say, I'm ready to go? Um, yeah, well, I think it's a really important question because uh, we're all going to face that point in our life, uh, one way or another. So, mm -hmm. uh, just to clarify, uh, so not Maximilian Kolbe, although this, you got the right concentration camp, I think, uh, Victor Frankel said that he observed people die before they died. And he was not indicating that as a conscious choice, like you're introducing the question, but rather a loss of purpose that ended up leading to a loss of life in the concentration camp I think he was in Auschwitz, although I'm questioning that now that I'm saying it. In any event, one of the concentration camps Viktor Frankl was in, uh, and that he had already uh, developed ideas around what he calls logotherapy, logotherapy uh, that building on a statement of, uh, I think, uh, oh, uh, Nietzsche, that when man has a sufficient why, he can endure any how. And so if you have a reason to push forward, it's amazing the ways that we can stretch the limits of our humanity in order to get there. And so what Viktor Frankl was observing was that when people had a reason to work through things, to work through processes, to work through difficulties, mental health, physical problems, uh, even the kind of brutality and physical suffering of a concentration camp, when they had a reason, they could make it through. When they lost a reason, they died uh, sooner rather than later. So the way that he described that, and I wasn't quoting him, but something along those lines of people died before they died. They gave, as soon as they gave up, as soon as they lost their reason to live, death became an inevitable reality because they collapsed, because they, anyway, uh, other things that happened where, where death is imminent uh, all the time in a concentration camp. So uh, Maximilian Kolbe surprisingly uh, stayed alive. So this actually pr pr provides a nice uh, 
set of brackets for us that you uh, mistakenly uh, noted one instead of the other, but actually they provide a nice um, uh, example or contrast. Maximilian Kolbe, first of all, uh, substituted his own life for another prisoner who had been chosen to die in the starvation bunker. The story is that a prisoner escaped. The Nazi practice was that 10 men in his barrack would be sentenced to the starvation bunker as a punishment for that prisoner's escaping, thus to obviously try to convince no other prisoners to escape, knowing that their their escape would cause the death, the painful, terrible death of 10 others of those that they were close with. In any event, as that was, uh, as men were being selected at random, one man was selected, was crying out that he had a family, he had a wife, he, his, his family needed him. And Maximilian Kolbe stepped up to the commandant Fritsch and volunteered, said, send that man back, I'll take his place. And uh, his boldness was so striking that Fritsch, who was renowned for his brutality and his fierceness, actually took a step back when Maximilian Kolbe broke ranks, stood him face to face and substituted himself for, uh, for Francis Gavonicek. In any event, um, I, I love telling this story, so forgive me for going into the details there for a moment. But uh, Maximilian Kolbe was sentenced to the starvation bunker with nine other men, a place in which those 10 were enclosed in darkness and left to starve to death. Uh, and you can imagine the horrific experience of that as they had no way out, they had nothing to do, and in some and often went crazy. They were already half starved to death from their experience in the concentration camp. And so uh, in other times, the, the guards testified in Maximilian Kolbe's process for canonization that they hated when men were put in the starvation bunker because the blood-curdling screams that issued forth from that place were hard for the guards themselves to bear. And not uncommonly, they would open the starvation bunker to find that the prisoners had tried to eat each other or had actually managed to do that, and uh, they, they went out of their minds. When Maximilian Kolbe was in the starvation bunker, uh, I believe eight of the 10 men were still alive after two weeks. And the two who died, died peacefully. There was no cannibalism. And Maximilian Kolbe led them in prayer, in song, exhorted them. He gave them a reason to live, and he helped them to offer their sufferings. And uh, it was uh, really incredible. And it angered the Nazis so much that they took them out and then killed them by lethal injection. Uh, they were uninterested in waiting for these men who were defying the, uh, the, the Nazi brutality through under the guidance of Maximilian Kolbe. And so now we could insert ourselves into that space and say, well, if ever there was a time to just give up and die, that would be it. I mean, what else are you going to do? It's not like you have something to survive for. It is a death sentence. The Nazis are going to leave you in there until you die. It's not like you can survive. You know, It's not like you're drowning and you might make it through. It's not like you have a disease and you might overcome it. Uh, you're going to die. And so we might really say that's a time to commit suicide, or that's a time to give up, or that's a time if ever there was one. And yet in that case, uh, I think we're all inspired by the heroism of Maximilian Kolbe and those men who survived uh, two weeks and uh, eventually were, were put to death by lethal injection. So, so there's, a, there's a value. The point is, 
one thing we have to a value we have to keep in mind is the value of suffering. So it's not just something useless and meaningless that should be ended as soon as possible. Now, at the same time, it's not something that should just be amplified or or taken for granted. So uh, please take that in this context. The uh, one of the real developments in modern medicine that's been so helpful has been palliative care, that pain management has done a tremendous good for people. Now, again, there's a little bit of a balance to be had. On the one hand, we don't want to intensify suffering. On the other hand, we don't want to sacrifice rationality and consciousness for the sake of eliminating suffering. So there's a, there's a sweet spot between uh, keeping, allowing someone to have enough of their wits about them in order to be intentional about the process that's unfolding, and yet at the same time to control the suffering so that they don't lose their mind in the pain that's irremediable. And, and finding that sweet spot is the uh, part of the uh, expertise of palliative care and, and the care for the individual. But then there's a, a, a space of the, the dying process. So it's not like, and this is really important, just, just like we don't kill the uh, uh, mentally disabled or physically disabled saying that their life is useless because they can't do anything, they can't produce anything. We don't just kill the dying and say their life is useless. And so we might as well just end it because it's not going to get any better and they're all done. Uh, we value even the the last offerings, breaths, sacrifices. And we don't know all of the interior purification that's going on as well. We, we don't just automatically go straight to heaven. Uh, heaven is a state of being in which we need to be radically open to love uh, to give ourselves in love, to be totally vulnerable before everyone who is in heaven and in union with God. And probably most of us are not ready for that at the point of death. And the, those last uh, purification, that last purification process in, in the dying, is it can be really valuable for people to learn to let go, to learn to trust, to learn to be more vulnerable, to uh, to so a lot of lot of things happening interiorly in those sometimes days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months. And so we want to really value that. So I'm, I haven't answered your question yet. <laughs> I, I haven't forgotten it. But I'm trying to build up a context in which we see that there's a real value in every moment of human life. So human life doesn't need to be sped to the end. And how do we value that? Well, we value it personally, uh, that, we, that we know that, but we also value it communally. In our monastery, we have a process that when a man is dying, a monk is with him at all times. And so we, we go over to the infirmary, we, we sign up through the night, we, we as a community gather around somebody who's on that final leg of the journey. And that's a, the right way to think about it, because it is a journey, and you don't get there faster by giving up. It's a journey that we, uh, that we move forward through in surrender. Um, but giving up and surrender are two different things. I'll say more about that in a moment. But we can really reinforce a proper sense of dying by valuing the one who is dying, by surrounding them with love, by supporting them with prayers, by by being a, a presence and showing that uh, this is not just something that's getting in the way and it would be better if somebody were dead because they're an inconvenience. That's the, the sort of opposite uh, mm -hmm. end of the spectrum. And so having a, developing a mentality of, well, this is, 
You know, this is a time to cancel other things. This is a time to be present to the one who is on the last leg. This is a time that we're closer to heaven than earth. And, and we gather around with this person. So there's uh, communally, we need to learn to value that and support it. And then finally, to come to your question now, being the one who is in that place, and I can't speak from personal experience <laughs> because I, well, haven't no, been in that, I haven't been in that place. I'm still very much alive. But uh, on the one hand, there can be a place for surrender. And I've, I've had some very moving experiences uh, personally, and I've heard secondhand of, you know, sometimes a person who holds on until the last child is able to come, you know, a, a mother of four or five children, grown children who are spread throughout the country. And finally, you know, Johnny shows up and all five of the children are there. And even though she's been unconscious in this whole process, when Johnny shows up and he whispers into her ear and he's present there, and then shortly after that, uh, this this long agonizing death process comes to an end. Is that just coincidence? I think not. Uh, there's there's a processing there. There's a kind of holding on there, and even as an act of love, it's not. Uh, you know, Johnny may have really needed those last moments with his mom before she died, and so there are ways that there are different processes that are unfolding that we're not in charge of all of the details. There's a lot of things going on there. In another case, one of our monks uh, who is in that kind of dying process, and there's a, you know, sometimes we talk about a death rattle. There's somebody that's just taking labored breaths and they just seem to go on. I remember the first time I experienced that, I thought, you know, our bodies don't know how to die. Our bodies only know how to live. And it's like they keep doing the process and they keep pushing through. But uh, but the abbot came and, and would say to the monk, you know, Father, Father Bill, you know, it's, you've, you've fought the good fight. You've done well, my friend, you know, now you can go to Jesus. Now you can go, you're, you're released. We, we give you to him. And so that that's part of a surrender, which is entering into the arms of the beloved. That's, you know, finally making the, the last stages of the journey and is, is being released. And so there's a way uh, we can speak those words out of love to somebody, not because like, will you just hurry up and get it over with, uh, but rather encouraging the person. Maybe they needed to, maybe Father Bill needs to hear that, you know, uh, I'm making up this name. I'm not sure we did have a Father Bill, but that's been quite a few years. In any event, uh, we can need to hear from somebody. We can need to be with somebody. We we, we, the Lord may want to draw other people into this process. There may be elements of purification going on. So should we surrender on the one hand, Lord, whatever you want? Uh, Jesus said, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, thy will be done. I entrust myself into your hands, uh, into your hands, Lord. I commend my spirit. These words of Jesus on the cross can become also our words. And, uh, and even on the cross, we see with Jesus, him saying, uh, tell us thy, it is finished, it is consummated. And then he gave up the spirit, he breathed his last. And uh, so there's a kind of intentionality that can go with it that's appropriate, which is not rejecting life, nor running from problems or suffering, but is really giving everything over to the God who created us and to the God who welcomes us into eternity. And a lot of thoughts coming out of that. So just an observation that we have as obviously none of us have gone through death and been able to talk about it. 
but from those who have this have been around those who have died, those who have, have witnessed that, um, inherently in your brain, all of the same mechanisms that turn on as whenever you're in a state of trauma turn on. And in so the recording feature of your memory gets a little bit distorted compared to a normal, regular, everyday event that you might have. So a lot of people, when they look back at, at, at someone passing, for so, that is the most stark memory that they have of the individual, especially the younger you are um, when someone would pass. And you'll, you'll hear a lot of people say, don't remember them like this. Don't remember them here with all the tubes in them in the hospital or, or, or what be it. And you know, some people feel a tremendous amount of guilt because that's what their brain does remember because it is inherently a more of a traumatic event and that's the way your brain records it. And that's a little bit different than what, what I was asking, but I, I did want to bring that into the component because we do live this element. I mean, this is something as, as people who are alive live. But to the, the individual that, that that's going through there, um, what, what everything you said is basically make, makes sense to me um, in, in the context of they're at the end, the body doesn't want to stop because the body doesn't know how to stop. And in some regards, it's, it's asking for permission, you know, making sure that everyone around you is going to be okay. Um, in some regards, it's, it's having an inner peace. And this isn't like, the first time you get behind a car and you just kind of will figure it out because there's someone who's already driven next to you um, saying, no, this is how you do it. This is how you, you know, come onto the highway. So on the one hand, this conversation, because of all those trauma things that might be building in someone's mind might be a little bit disturbing or off-putting. I, I want to make sure that, that, you know, we, we have this conversation because it's not an instruction manual that most people discuss. And I think that it's, important um so with that being said father um would you be able to dive a little bit deeper into kind of like the when we're there as individuals because um, it's going to happen you know so we don't put ourselves in in extra agony at the end thinking we're doing something wrong as there is a great percentage of people out there who have that personality mindset that will just be in fear that that i can't even do this right type of mentality mm. and, and to to, to try to alleviate extra pain at the end of what I'm sure is already a painful process. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. It's a great question and, and uh, a great sensitivity. I, I've had the chance to sit with quite a few dying people, including my own mother. I was with her uh, when she died and, uh, and, and uh, I found it, I found it very beautiful actually. Uh, and, and with others who uh, it's true. I mean, we can really waste away and, and, uh, I haven't been with as many uh, tubed up and uh, more of my experiences have been in home settings, palliative settings. Uh, people are in hospice care and are sort of minimally wired up, which I, I certainly would say is better as much as it's possible. There's a great book, by the way, that I would recommend to anybody called Being Mortal by Atul Gawanda. And uh, it's a great uh, journey into the process of uh, well, how society has handled death and dying, and the which has talked about how things took place in hospitals, and then we developed nursing homes, and 
then we've moved back to something like hospice care, palliative care as much as possible. And, uh, and, and all of the things involved with, with medicine and personal experience and death and dying. And uh, when, you know, because there's a, a related question, a step back from your question, which is, well, when, when do you say enough? You know, how much chemotherapy do you get before you just throw in the towel? How many medical interventions do you have before you say, you know, my time has come? Uh, those are key questions that Atul Gawanda really looks at in this uh, in that book. It's really uh, quite well done. Uh, uh, he's not Catholic, of course. He is. Uh, he was a surgeon, and his father is a surgeon, and um, he goes through his father's dying process and the palliative care and everything else. Very beautiful, but. Uh, in any event, that that uh, question of what do we do? Well, I think, first of all, to know and and uh, you know, especially as Christians, we we see a dying person who doesn't look. I mean, my mother looked very different in her last her dying moment than she looked most of my life, as she had withered away and and meant to many degrees, and um, just was you know had been in bed quite a bit, and these kinds of things really affect one's appearance, and. At the same time, we know that it's Christ who is there. As, as Jesus said in Matthew 25, when I, I was sick and you visited me, or I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was hungry and you fed me. And the way that a, a dying person is really radically poor in the way that Christ describes in Matthew 25, we can really say, it is he who is there. It is he that we are with, that we are ministering to. And so if we're going to have a memory uh, that's implanted because it's intense, um, hopefully not traumatizing in the same way that other things would be traumatizing, but but uh, certainly it will be intense no matter what, uh, then may the memory of Christ be imprinted in our minds, that we could spend hours or even days, that we could be on watch with him, as I've described we do in the monastery. And what do we do when we're there with him? We We pray, we accompany, we love. And, and we take care of basic needs for, uh, for someone just trying to make them comfortable, being, being attentive in little ways, whispering words of love, holding the person's hand, just a lot of little gestures. We don't know exactly how all of that gets communicated, how much gets processed, but our presence is, is real. And so the, the love is real and the, and the assistance is real. And so in that sense, you can't really do it wrong if you show up as much as you can, you know, and it can be difficult and we shouldn't force ourselves to go beyond what is, uh, I don't know, reasonable space. Staying up for days is a torture technique, you know, <laughs> so we, we, we need sleep and maybe we can sleep in a chair in the hospital room, but we should do it with others as much as possible. It should be a communal effort. And then again, simply to pray the the church has prayers for the dying that are very beautiful. I went through the the whole pages and pages of them for my mother for about an hour and a half. And then my dad came to the room and we were there together. And then we were talking a little bit. And then my mother made some movement and and uh, those you know turned out to be her last moments that we could both be present for. It was very beautiful. But to do it together, to support each other, to, to be present in shifts, to love the person, to make the sacrifices, uh, to give them encouragement, hold their hand. All those things are, are just ways to, to be present and to love in those moments. And, uh, and in that sense, you can't do it wrong. 
so there's no uh, no performance. And different people engage. I, I'm a pretty interior person. I'm not so expressive in those environments. Uh, other people are very expressive, and I love that. And there's a complementarity there. And so we don't have to become someone else either. We just be ourselves with the person, love them, pray for them. And we hope that this episode helped people out there. It's uh, obviously, like I said, not exactly a topic people like to think about or, or run to in, the, in their first thoughts. But we do hope it's something that, that helps everyone out there and, and helps people moving forward in the link to, to think about it and to, to pray for those who, who have passed. So we will be with you again here next week. We hope you guys have a great week out there.